Please take your Bible and turn to 2 Thessalonians and let's read about that marvelous grace that we've been singing about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're joining us for the first time or perhaps uh, at home, if not here, then we have been going for several weeks through the study of 2 Thessalonians after having completed 1 Thessalonians. And the last few weeks, we have been considering the second coming of Christ. We move out of that, and, and, and I want you to see the contrast. I'm going to point that out for you so that we will see how Paul jumps immediately from talking about people in the end time and those who've rejected uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, have fallen for the deceit of the Antichrist. And he draws a, a sharp, sharp distinction here when he begins speaking to us out of um, chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read all the way through 17, even though we're just going to consider verses 13 and 14 today. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Father, we thank you for the marvelous grace about which we have been singing. And now we want to enter into a, a, a study that, Lord, I, I pray would be such an encouragement to those of us who've been, who've been chosen from the beginning for salvation by sanctification, by the Spirit and belief in truth. Through hearing the gospel, we look forward to that day when we will obtain the full glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, Lord, we need your encouragement. We need it from the Scriptures, not from the failed attempts of man or man's doctrine or religion, but from your Word. And so we ask, oh, how I pray, Lord, Give me clarity in expressing this, but also give each person listening, both here in this room and um, through uh, media. I pray that we would be filled with the Spirit and understand what you are doing to encourage our faith. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I just shared with you that these words that I read, particularly in verses 13 and 14, stand in stark contrast to what Paul has just been saying about another group of people. And so to show this, I want you, you've got your Bibles open, but I want you to go back and to look at several things I tried to emphasize, I always do when I read, certain things that you need to see. And in fact, if you believe in marking in your Bible, I would just circle every time in this little passage where you see the word you. He's speaking to you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. God chose you from the beginning and, and on. And he distinguishes between another group of people 
where he uses entirely different pronouns. Let's back up to chapter 1 and verse 6. Look at the, the difference in the pronouns. God considers it just to repay with affliction those. You see how he's differentiating? There are only two groups of people in the world today. Perhaps in this room right here, there are those that are the you, and then there is a vast number of people who would be considered those. Look at what else he says, repay with affliction those who afflict you. In verse 8, in flaming fire, that's how the Lord Jesus is coming with his mighty angels, inflicting vengeance on whom? Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, they are going to experience an incredible deception from the Antichrist. And he, he makes sure that you know who those people are, those who are perishing why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, so God judiciously sends upon them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false so that all of those people may be condemned who did not love the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness in chapter 2. So, again, there are always only two groups of people in the world today. And let me let you in on a little secret just to remind you of a reality. You weren't always a you, were you? At one time, you were a they. You were a them. And God, it says very clearly, even though you were at one time a part of a group that in another place Paul calls children of wrath, he has now saved you from the wrath to come. He saved you from this situation. Those, and look at the descriptors, See, Paul didn't use this just in 2 Thessalonians, but also in other books of the Bible, like the book of Romans, those who are self-seeking. That's, that's the, the order of their life, not just that we don't fall into that trap from time to time, but that's the order of their life, they're self-seeking. And to mimic the words here in 2 Thessalonians 2, they do not obey the truth. What do they obey? Unrighteousness. And for that group, the those, the they, there will be wrath and fury. And then here's a rather long passage of Scripture about what God has done for us. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. That was back in 1 Thessalonians. You, at one point in time, I don't know how old you were when you did it, but if you are a true believer, then you received the Word you did something out of that. You turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. And now, what are you doing? You're waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus, who, and would you say these words with me, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what God has done for us. Now, how does that happen? And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time here this morning. And starting right out of the chute, do you see it? Do you see the words that Paul says? And this is very, very important. Paul doesn't say we ought to give thanks to you, brothers. We ought to commend you for somehow seeing and for your great wisdom because you brought yourself out of darkness into light. No, what he says is we ought to give thanks to God for you. 
not to you for changing yourselves, but he is grateful to God because God has changed them. Let me encourage you to be very careful. I, through the years, have found myself doing it, and even this last week was tempted to do it in talking with someone who had recently come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I can remember so vividly. Do, do you all remember the day when people would come forward and they would profess faith in Christ and then the church, we, we would forward and extend the what? The right hand of fellowship. And typically what I would hear over and over again is people, now watch this, and I want to say this with the right spirit, but you need to be very, very careful who you're praising and who you're congratulating. Because over and over again, I would hear words like this. I want to congratulate you for making that decision. That is the best decision that you will ever make. Well, now, that is true. It is the best decision. But it would be far better for, like the Apostle Paul, you to say, we give thanks. I give thanks to God because of the work that He has done in your life. What is my exhortation that's really not even the major part of this? Be careful who you're praising. He gives thanks to God for His work in their lives that began at eternity past and will continue through eternity future. Let me, let me do a couple of things, and we're not going to spend a, a, a lot of time here. You might jot down these passages of Scripture because they, they are the, 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 the Magna Carta. They are really the defining passages of Scripture about something that is so important that we're talking about today, and that is your assurance as a Christian of your security and where that needs to be placed. Ephesians chapter 1, let me just look at the parallel again. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to some of the words. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Does that sound like what Paul just said here? He predestined us to adoption as sons in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. And he just goes on and on. And the words almost cascade out of his mouth to show glory and praise and honor to God for his great salvation. And, and then we jump to the second passage of Scripture. That's a whole chapter. Do you know what it starts with? Who knows today what Romans 8, 1 says? There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he just runs through the entire process. In fact, you, do any of you remember when I preached through the book of Romans? And yeah, yeah, that, that we, we took five and a half years to preach through the book of Romans. And we, we hunkered down. And we, we, we discovered when we got to Romans chapter 8 that this was what some people call the golden chain of salvation. And especially if you drop down from that verse 1 and you slide down to verse 29 and you hear these things building again on one another. Look at the chain here. Look at the links in that chain, for those whom he foreknew. Does that say, though, does that say what God foreknew or whom he foreknew? Do you remember when we studied that? What does foreknow mean? Well, the easy answer is it means to look ahead of time and know beforehand. Certainly God does that. But the word know in Scripture has a deeper meaning. Adam knew Eve. An intimacy. Adam loved Eve, and she conceived, and she brought forth a son. So to forelove in Paul's thinking in Romans chapter 8 is to, in keeping with what we just read, is to love from the beginning. You Brothers, beloved by the Lord. 
Again, notice it doesn't say what he knew. Did, did God know before the foundation of the world that you were going to believe in Christ? Did he know that? That's not the point. Of course he knew it. It's saying he chose you, watch this, those whom he foreknew, foreloved, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, brethren, and those who he, whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, is that just some deep theology to mess your mind up? And if you're going to get hung up today on a word like chose or a word like predestined, you're going to miss the real intent of what Paul wanted to do when he said in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, what shall we say then to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? What's the answer to that? Nothing, nada, zip, zero, nothing. Nothing can be against us if God is for us. You're, you're beloved. It says that in, it, do you see that on, on your outline? Beloved by the Lord. Friends, if all you see, and by the way, this is the way we grew up. This is the way I grew up as a Baptist. God looked forward into time and ratified my decision. That's not divine sovereignty. That's not grace. Here's something to think about. God did know everything about you before time began every decision you would make, and He loved you anyway. That's the thrust of the words of the Apostle Paul. Look at the next phrase, because God chose you from the beginning. The beginning of what? He's speaking to the Thessalonians, the beginning of the founding of the church. No, it goes back further than that. The beginning of time before the foundation of the world. And no matter how you look at this, and I'm not negating the decision that we make, okay? I'm not negating the responsibility that we have to do that, but what I'm saying is that there is first cause. And if we love God, and out of that, we choose to receive God through repentance and faith. There is a reason behind that that transcends what was in our heart to begin with. Let me move on. I already did that one. And I love this passage, this verse of Scripture, 1 John four nineteen. Why do we love? Why, why do we love Him? It's pretty clear because he first loved us. All right. Now, let, let's move on. We're just running through this, the next, the next little phrase in your outline. For what did God choose you? Not only now, but for eternity. For what did God choose you? Now, there, there are different uh, uh, phrases, like in Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about that He chose us for sanctification. But right here is a very, very good word that He uses. It says, He chose you from the beginning to be saved. He said, now, now remember, second, first and second Thessalonians were written at the beginning of Paul's ministry. Second Timothy was written at the end, toward the end of his ministry, and his theme hasn't changed because the gospel never changes. He saved us and called us, now, right here, I just changed pronouns, us, the us is the you, okay? So he, 
saved you and He called you, it really needs to be individualized, not just a corporate sense, to a holy calling. Now watch this, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There's an incredible mystery here. But essentially, looking at this verse, I can agree with Augustus Toplady, who wrote one, one of the most famous hymns that sometimes we still sing, and I, I know you know it, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. See, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So he called us to be saved. Now let's move on. Through what? Through sanctification by the Spirit. That's what he does. Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's what we do. Oh, but by the way, where does that faith come from? Again, first cause. We just need to see where all of these things line up. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Do you exercise that faith? Of course you do. But we see what Paul says, and that not of yourselves. Well, does that refer to the faith or grace or the whole ball of wax with salvation? The answer is yes. The whole thing. Salvation, grace, faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And that's why we praise God. Jonah 2.9, that's been probably the sum total of, of what I believe about salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. Okay, let's move on. Verse 14, we're moving right along. To this he called you. Okay, do you see that before the foundation of the world, he chose, he loved you first, and then he chose you to be saved. To this he called you through our gospel. In our ABF class today, our Sunday school class, someone pointed out that the gospel never changes that's why it's consistent all the way through, so that you may ultimately obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose you and called you to be saved. Amen. Justification, everybody knows this. That's the past tense. What's the present tense? Come on. Sanctification. That's what he's doing now on the basis of what he did when he justified you. And then someday is coming what? Glorification. And that's why this is a long passage of Scripture. But let, let me just walk you through it because it is so rich and full. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You are children of, you are children of God in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. And if you don't believe that, then you've been sequestered among Christians a little too much. You need to get out some. Now, just be careful. And you're going to understand that we live as Christians in the middle of a perverse and twisted generation, but not so that we'll shrink back and say, oh, woe is me. No, so that we will do what? Shine as lights in the world. Students, you're going to be out there in Arlington, Texas. You know, it's hotter in Arlington, Texas than it is right here in Oklahoma City. More humid. But you're going to be shining as a light as you share in those vacation Bible schools and all of the things that you'll be sharing with those kids in those apartments with. And you and I shine like lights in that world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
And then we jump to the end. Here, here's the end again. So that he, this is Jesus with his bride, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. See, the latter, that's the glory part. Okay, what I just read. But the latter is always based on the former. It's, it's a consummation of what God has done and is doing. Well, let's go back to that phrase, He chose you to be saved. What does it mean to be saved? I, when I was in seminary, and I worked in an organization, it was a parachurch organization called Young Life. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in Young Life believed like this that I'm about to share. But I was a club leader, and so when I first started out meeting with these kids who would come, and a lot of them were, were lost kids. It was fun. It was a tough group, but it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And so I began to share the gospel, sharing like what some of I've been sharing with you today, and I talked about being saved. The leader who was there to listen to me, make sure my theology was okay, pulled me aside after that, and he said, I, I, that was a good presentation, I thought, presentation, hmm, okay. Um, but here's what he said. He said, I, I really think you need to avoid the word saved. Now, bless his heart, he said it out of good, good faith. He said, the reason is this, it's a churchy term. And you're dealing with kids that are not from church, and so you want to avoid jargon that might be churchy. Now, I've thought about that a lot since that evening. And I've realized that saved, not only for Christians to say that you have been saved, but it is a wonderful word for non-Christians as well. What does it mean to be saved? If all it means is, oh, you're going to have a greater purpose, or you're going to have greater meaning, or you're going to have a better life, then Jesus can just be your life coach. But if we see the real problem, then we're going to love the word saved because the word saved means to be rescued. It means to be delivered. It means to be, in this context, preserved. It means to be sealed. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. And whenever we have, those of you who've been through the, the, the Membership Matters class, you remember what I say in the presentation of the gospel, that God is more than a friend who will help you. He is a king who will save you. And that's why Paul says this in Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be, what? Saved, saved from what? Saved from a meaningless life, purposeless living? Saved from the wrath of God. Remember, we're contrasting this in Second Thessalonians about those who are the them and the they, and someday they will be under the, the wrath of Almighty God, but not for you, because God has not destined you and me, us, for wrath, but to obtain, here's that word again, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. So how, how does he do that? Well, our sins are forgiven. What does that mean? 
And that's why I prefer the word justification, the repaying of a debt. The debt is forgiven. Now, let me just stop and, and, and say this. Even, even in the best of churches that teach Bible doctrine, there are still people, listen, who struggle with the foundation of their security. I know this because I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've talked to people in every church, and sometimes they'll come in and they will say, Pastor, I am struggling, and they'll call it different things, with eternal security. I'm struggling with knowing that I am really saved. And listen, folks, if you have ever been there, and I dare say that there are some that are there right now. It's not academic. It's not merely theological. That's a struggle that goes deep down inside. And if you do not have the security of your salvation, you will be a miserable Christian. I'm talking to true believers, the you. And if you're a young person and you struggle with the reality of your security, you're going to get on this roller coaster and this up and down thing of going to an exciting meeting or a camp or a revival service or whatever, and, and, and you'll get, quote, saved all over again, or you'll rededicate your life. And sometimes that is such a vicious cycle. I'm going to give you a statement. You may want to think about it. I'm going to ask you, is this true or false? Okay, ready? Don't you love these? True or false? Upon saving faith, we know that our past sins are forgiven. Don't answer yet. And now we must toe the line. True or false? I'm, I'm telling you, this is what so many of you who are adults grew up with. That is, upon saving faith, when I was 11 and walked the aisle, boy, just as sincerely as I could, gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I had this sense, and maybe it was just me, I don't think it was the preacher that said it, maybe it was, that my past sins were forgiven, hallelujah. But from here on out, I've got to toe the line. And that is absolutely, biblically, a false statement. You see, justification is more than just forgiveness of past sins. It takes away the negative. Justification puts Christ's righteousness into your account. If you've run up a bill at the grocery store back in the day when they used to do that, you've got a huge tab at the grocery store. It's one thing to have that debt forgiven. It's a totally different thing for the owner to say, carte blanche, you can have whatever you want for the rest of your life and for eternity. That's what justification does. Not just a taking away of the negative, but giving us the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. Any of you remember the little song that goes, He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I did. Maybe it'd be more effective if I didn't sing it. <laughs> You're listening to me singing and not listening to the words. He paid a debt he did not owe. Is that correct? Absolutely. I owed a debt that I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Is that true? But it's only half true. And one of the most dangerous things is a half-truth paraded as a whole truth. He not only paid the debt that I owed, he gave me in my spiritual bank account, unlimited resources, so that when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ in my account. 
That's why the old song, Rock of Ages, says, and by the way, unfortunately, there have been hymnals which have softened this, and they've, they've just obliterated the, the meaning. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let Who's the Rock of Ages? Christ. Let me find and hide myself in thee. See, those are just old churchy words, aren't they? We are chosen in Christ. We are put into Christ at salvation. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed. Now, watch this. What does the water and the blood, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross do in his resurrection? Be of sin the double cure. What's the first part? The negative. Save from wrath. Second part, make me pure. Paul does not want you to be insecure about the salvation that he has given to you in Jesus Christ. That's why he says, we give thanks to God for you, for what he has done in you and for you. Salvation is not dependent upon you letting go of God. It's dependent upon Him not letting go of you. And do you remember that He said that you're in His hand? What can take you out of His hand? Nothing. Nada. Zip. Zero. What other words can I use? He will not let go of you. Now, here's the argument. But, Pastor, won't that lead to license? Won't that lead Christians to lawlessness? Pastor, what about all the warnings of Scripture about falling away? What about the abuse of once saved, always saved? Mm Mm-hmm. You remember the story I, I think I've told there are enough new here, I'll tell it again. When I, from being a youth pastor in two churches, I went to, I went in view of a call to pastor the first church that I ever pastored, and I preached. My text for that sermon that morning was John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. What a great look at God's sovereignty and salvation. And the one who comes to me, I will, King James, in no wise cast out. I will certainly not throw away our responsibility to to, to come to him, but his keeping power. And I said this in the sermon. Now listen very carefully. It's bad enough to be understood, let alone be misunderstood. I said the teaching that is common today in a lot of our churches of once saved, always saved, as it is commonly taught, is a teaching out of hell and will lead untold millions to hell. Well, I met with the deacons that afternoon. (laughs) One of the first questions was, Pastor, do you... you do you not believe in the assurance of salvation? And I said, I absolutely with all my heart do. But really what that phrase ought to be, and you know this, if saved, always saved. It is is deadly to teach that a person can be saved truly from the penalty of sin and being saved from the power of sin and be eternally secure without ever having a desire to love God and the things of God, doing your own thing, loving your own sins more than Christ and His truth. Listen, God's saving grace doesn't free us to serve ourselves. It frees 
us to serve God sincerely for the first time in our lives. I'm going to illustrate this further, okay? Hang with me. I looked this up last week. How does a person become a Christian? You're going to be asked that question this week, hopefully. Maybe some of you will be asked that question too. How does a person become a Christian? Well, let me parallel that with something that I looked up on the internet because I was curious. This is from a Muslim website on how to become a Muslim. Okay? I'm not going to read the whole thing. It was about 18 pages. But I wanted to, to show you some, some parallels, some similarities in how we commonly teach what is necessary to become a follower of Christ. Dear reader, now this is a very sincere, I, I'm not downing Muslims. I, this is just a false religion and this is just what they teach, okay? But listen how, how closely it comes to what sometimes is taught in evangelical churches. Dear reader, on behalf of the members of MuslimConverts.com, I welcome you to Islam. You could just insert, I welcome you to Christianity. It always brings true Muslims great joy when we hear of anyone wishing to convert to Islam. Now again, I could just substitute words. It always brings true Christians great joy when we hear of anyone wishing to convert to Christianity. Muslims always love to hear how others converted to Islam. So for sure, you will be greatly welcomed to Islam. Now, I asked that question true or false a minute ago. Listen to this statement. Islam erases all sins committed prior to becoming a Muslim. Not a person, Islam, the religion, erases. I, one of the things that I ask, my, that you ought to be asking yourself, on what basis? Erases all sins committed prior to becoming a Muslim. As soon as you become a Muslim, all your previous sins are forgiven, and you start a blank slate and a complete, clean record. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Is that sometimes what we offer people? Now, here, I put a star by this. It is easy to become a Muslim. Now, by the way, let me just give a disclaimer. If somebody is really sleepy and you... you, you think that I'm telling you this is what you need to do? No, you, you don't need to do this. In fact, they, later on they say, don't hesitate. So I'm just telling you how they say it is so easy to become a Muslim. Well, what do we say many times to a person? It's so easy to become a Christian. To become a Muslim, one must simply make a declaration of faith. Those words. What is their declaration of faith? They must pronounce the Shahada in Arabic. Our profession of faith is saying, I invite Jesus into my heart. Now, they add this, so do we. Pronounce the declaration of faith with sincerity and conviction. Pronouncing the testimony of faith is sufficient to make one a convert to Muslim. There are, however, conditions that must be observed before it can effectively make one a Muslim. I, I could just read on and on to you, but what I, do, do, you, do you understand what I'm trying to point out to you? How that unwittingly we have, we have turned becoming a Christian into a transaction. Say the right words. Now, words are important. With the mouth one confesses, with the heart one believes. Don't leave out the heart. Believing. 
Sometimes I fear that we've turned it only into a profession, a confession, a transaction, and not a transformation. Let me give a couple of biblical illustrations like Jesus would have done. How does a peach tree become an apple tree? Do you guys know the answer to that? What's the answer? How does a peach tree become an apple tree? What? It's impossible. How does a dead person become a live person? Physically. Like Lazarus was for those days in the tomb. How, how, do you, how does that happen? You say, it doesn't. It's impossible. How does one creature, let's say a dog, become a totally different creature? Let's say a cat. Well, maybe that's not a real good illustration. I, I guess all you have to do is say you're a cat, and that's okay. Okay, the answer is, in all of those situations, pastor, it's, it's not possible. It's impossible. And that's where Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples about true salvation, true salvation, and they came to the understanding of what it took, a complete transformation, and they said, who then can be saved? And what did Jesus say? With men, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. And if Christianity is just a matter of a transaction, creating a contract because you repeat or mimic some words, even sincerely, then it is something that can be broken when you violate the contract. In other words, if it's something that you've done, then it's something that you can violate and that you must keep. But if it is a transformation, if it is something that God does in you. Now, of course, he is said to do the matter of faith, repentance, and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if a person has done that, and God does that work of transformation, and He is the one who is saved, then it is God who will keep you. And so what do you do down the line? Every one of you. How many of you sinned this last week? More than once. You weren't just forgiven of those sins. You've got Christ's perfect record. You remember? I mentioned Rock of Ages a minute ago. You know, the sad thing about it is, and this is why our work with, with, with the, the church in Turkey is so important, but our work here, because it's, it's not only for Muslims, it's for other people. But the sad thing about it is, Muslims can never sing Rock of Ages. They can say, save from wrath if I keep myself pure. What a miserable existence. Let me do a last quote, then we're done. I, I've got a lot more that I could say, probably. I, I, let, me, let me encourage you to do this. If something that I've said rings true, and you'd like to discuss it more. Oh, I, I beg, please see me. If something that I've said doesn't ring true, don't let it go. Say, uh, Pastor, you said this, and did I misunderstand or whatever? Uh, but because this is such an important thing for you to know that you're a you and to know that God, if He has saved you, will keep you. Look at the last quote on your worship guide from Don Kistler. Probably one of the best little succinct sayings 
about what we are looking for, for our salvation ultimately, not for my ability to keep it, but from what God has done in receiving Jesus Christ. Look at this. The elect person is a gift from God to Christ based on Christ's satisfactory work, not on my satisfactory work. If a person could lose his salvation, it could only be on the basis of God's dissatisfaction with the finished work of Christ. But he has declared once for all, and it is written infallibly in the pages of Scripture, that he is satisfied. And if God is satisfied with what Christ has done, the issue is settled. Father, I pray that you might work in our hearts. Those of us who know you, we, we are on that road of sanctification, learning to hate our sins, learning to love the things that you love, that even when we fail, we don't look to our ability to keep but on yours, based on the finished work of Christ. So help us, not just as a congregation, but as individuals, moms and dads, students, children. And, and, and we know that in this life, there are people that may get angry with us, but Lord, you will never be angry with us again. Your wrath has been extinguished on the cross. So help us to know that and to live it. And certainly, as I said a moment ago, if there's anyone here who has never turned from their sins, turned to Christ, I pray today would be the day. And if they sense an inability to do that, Lord, I pray that you would put them on their knees crying out to you, God, grant me repentance and faith so I could know you and be your child. So I thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.